Turn in your Bibles tonight to Deuteronomy chapter 22, and we're going to get there in a few minutes. So if you'd also like to turn to Proverbs chapter 7, uh, we'll be there first. Um, I, I know these lessons over the last couple months have, have really pushed people in two directions. And again, we're going to be talking about uh, this idea of standards and convictions. Some have responded well to it and embraced it, and others have pushed back against it. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with what you've always heard. Uh, the way you were raised, or, or just maybe a lack of, of previous teaching on that topic. Um, but whatever side you've taken, I want you to understand that in no way have I taught these lessons because I like controversy or pushback. In fact, I hate it. Um, I've taught these lessons because I find them clearly in the Word of God, and it's my responsibility as your pastor to preach the whole counsel of God regardless of whether I like it or whether you like it. Um, and I'm, I'm going to answer to God someday for what I teach and what I preach. Um, I'm not going to answer to any one of you at the judgment seat. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way at all. I don't mean that in a, in a, uh, um, a snarky way at all. Uh, but I'm going to answer to God. And I want to I preach and, and uh, teach the things and do my best to be able to say that I preached and taught it, whether it was popular in Christian culture or uh, whether it was accepted or not. So this will be our last study on standards and convictions, but I think you'll find it to be a pretty convincing argument in favor of just exactly what I've been talking about, and that's the idea of stronger standards, stronger, uh, stronger standards of dress. And there's certainly a whole lot more we could say. There's been a lot of books written on this topic, uh, but for the sake of time and for other important things that I do think we need to get to, uh, this will be the last. And so uh, just to give you a little bit of a recap, in the last two lessons, we looked at uh, two scriptural principles that relate directly to this area of, of uh, what we wear. We looked at the principle of modesty, and we looked at the principle of vanity, and uh, we, we spent a little bit of time on those. But tonight, we're going to look at this third principle, and again, the last principle, and, and it's a biblical principle and one that relates directly to our clothing, uh, but it relates directly to how people viewed clothing in Bible times and how people view clothing now. And it's the principle of identity. We might also call it the principle of distinction. And so when we talk about the idea of dress, it's not just modesty, although that's a big part of it. It's modesty and distinction or modesty and identity. So I want to define this biblical concept of identity and see how it applies in our lives in this area of standards and conviction. So number one, let's look at this. And I've only got two points here tonight. Um, not, not that it's going to be real quick, but... Uh, uh, just, I want to, uh, to make sure that we lay these things out. So number one, you, you have to understand that your clothes say something. Um, your clothes speak. And I'm not, I'm not talking here particularly about modest, uh, immodesty or vanity. Uh, I'm talking about the fact that your clothes' choices create or reveal something essentially about you. They identify you. And, you know, it could be that, uh, I mean, there's, there's lots of different ways that that can be applied. You know, that guy always wears that color, or that guy always wears a suit, or that, you know, that lady always wears th that type of clothes, whatever it happens to be. Um, and, and so maybe kind of on the more harmless side of that thing, you, you know, they may identify you as a slob, the way you dress, right? Or they may identify you as somebody who is neat, or somebody who is fashionable, or somebody who is, um, you know, prioritizes comfort, or, you know that you're practical, or that you're young, or that you're old, right? You can tell how old Bill is based on the way that he dresses all the time, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, and then he's made everybody else do it because he went and bought ties and made everybody else put those on too. No, I'm kidding. 
Jackson loves that tie, Brother Bill. He wears that thing every, uh, every time they have to wear a tie for school, every time for church. He wears it everywhere. So uh, and I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, I'm teasing, obviously. But all of these things may or, not, may or may not be intentional by you, but they do exist. Your clothes do speak. And along that same lines, there are some very clear examples um, in, in both the Bible and in real life of clothes being purposely chosen for reasons beyond beauty or practicality, right? And that's, that's a lot of what we've talked about before. They're, they're a lot of times they're chosen as a means of self-expression. doesn't take long of walking around in a mall somewhere to see uh, just exactly what self-expression they're trying to make, right? Uh, there, was, there, there are some, some clothing brands that are more, and I'm not up on my clothing brand, so uh, forgive me, but there are some clothing brands that are more outspoken in their idea of rebellion against society and everything else. And you know, you could go into like Abercrombie and Fitch, and you can see, especially in the two, you know, the early 2000s. But even now, there's a lot more that are like that. I think maybe they were probably one of the leading ones in that whole charge of that sexualized look and trying to uh, just, you know, um, give people that idea. Um, you think about somebody who dresses with a goth lifestyle, right? I mean, they, you can see a difference in them, and they're trying to show you something, right? And most of the time, that goth idea is, I'm rebelling against society. I'm going to wear all black. I can wear my hair off how I want to. I can wear my clothes how I want to, and you can't say anything otherwise, right? There's a lot of stores that you can go to that have that uh, idea. I mean, I don't have to say much about the Amish for you to know that they have their own style of clothing and how they dress, you know, and uh, go to a pride parade, right? And you're going to see that they dress in their own way too. So our dress and the way we dress says something about us. It's a means of self-expression in a lot of ways. And thankfully, we do have scripture to show us that fact too. I just want to look at this one verse in Proverbs chapter 7 and verse number 10. It says this, and behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot. I'm trying not to be inappropriate, but a prostitute then and now, right, had a certain style of clothing that advertises who they are. Um, and we see all the way throughout the rest of the Bible, and not, not necessarily that, that idea, but the idea of, you know, um, uh, a priest's garments, a widow's garments, um, you had a bride's garment. So there's obviously ways that we can dress to try to get across a certain idea of what we are or what we want to be. So how, do you, how you present yourself to the world, whether you like it or not, identifies you. And, and, and those uh, that we just mentioned, and for sake of time, we're not going to go look at them in the Bible, but um, they're simply different expressions of the same biblical truth, and that's this, your clothes speak. What you wear says something about you. So how does the overarching truth of a holiness that comes from the inside out apply here? Well, it, it tells us that our clothing, our makeup, our jewelry, our hair, everything, they're all presentation choices, and, and, and they should be filtered through the understanding of who we are. Well, who are we, biblically? Well, we're sinners saved by grace, right? Uh, we're children of God pursuing holiness, or at least we should be. We're new creatures who have been separated from the world, or at least we should be. And, and the same thing with, with, that we talked about with the principles of vanity and modesty, this principle, principle of identity directly impacts the clothing choices that we make. Uh, in relation to our appearance, and that has a lot to do with the, the brands, the styles, the lengths, the colors, the materials, so many different things that we can talk about, but my point here is that those choices identify us, and they should be filtered through a biblical screen. How, how you look says something about who you are, 
about how you identify yourself, about um, uh, how you view yourself, for that matter. But uh, I guess the question that I would ask tonight then is, does your appearance choices or do your appearance choices reflect the work of Christ within you or not? So not only do your clothes identify your Christianity, your underlying identity as a Christian, but also, number two, your clothes identify your gender. And that's, that's kind of where I want to focus tonight. And so turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Biblically, we have seen this idea specifically in 1 Corinthians 11 already. And again, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go back and review that tonight, but Paul spent a lot of time. He took that, almost that whole chapter there in 1 Corinthians 11 to talk about that idea uh, of course, we talked about the idea of your hair and your appearance and all that stuff. But this idea that our outward appearance ought to line up with the gender that God made us is, is not just reserved to hair like we talked about. You know, it's, it's explicitly tied in Scripture to our clothing as well. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5 says this, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. Now, abomination is a great word of emphasis. Um, it's, it not only reflects the depth of God's feeling about something, but also the length of God's feeling about something. Um, and with one exception, everything that God condemns as an abomination in the Old Testament, he again condemns as an abomination in the New Testament. We see that, that same idea with homosexuality, right, for, for example. Um, which, by the way, that, that has obvious gender connections to it as well, right? God calls homosexuality an abomination in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 22, God is basically saying, in essence, I made you a man. I made you a woman. Your outward appearance ought to reflect that. Uh, we could put it another way around and say that you should not dress to reflect your sexuality, but you should dress to reflect your masculinity or your femininity, Right? Uh, the first part of that would be immodest. Dressing to reflect your sexuality would be immodest. But the second part of that is entirely scriptural. Dressing to reflect your masculinity or your femininity, right? Uh, doing that is an external reflection of an internal belief. God identifies me as a man or God identifies me as a woman. My clothing choices ought to publicly say that I understand and I agree with what God said. Uh, we could look at a lot of verses and a lot of physical examples to show that, which we're not going to do for the sake of time tonight, but God made us different, right? God gave us different roles. God gave us different responsibilities, and we've talked extensively about that when it comes to the roles of the husband and the wife and the man and the woman in the home. We have different mentalities. We have different bodies. We have different strengths. We have different weaknesses, but we're not only different. We're scripturally required to visibly look different. And so in, in being brief tonight, I'm not, I'm not taking time to explain how psychology has, trying to be, has been trying to change the gender roles for many years, but what we're seeing today with this transgender ideology that is just being pushed down our throats and, um, and is, you know, it is, is transforming schools, it's transforming bathroom policies, whoever thought, you know, 10 years ago that you were going to have to wonder if there was going to be a guy in a, man's, in a woman's bathroom, Right? Uh, but this whole idea, this transgender ideology has been given free reign because of all the work that's been done in society to change those gender roles to this point in history. Right? But the simple truth is that we cannot change our gender without revolting against our maker. And, you know, as, as obvious as it seems to us that God gave you the gender that you were assigned at birth, right? You're either a man or a woman. You don't get to change that. 
And society is saying, no, I, 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 I want to change that. I got, you know, uh, God gave me this, you know, this, these features to make me a man or a woman, uh, but that's not who I am. I'm changing that. And you revolt against what God made you to be, right? But what those who embrace that idea fail so often to grasp is that we cannot even appear to change our gender without revolting against our maker. And to do that is to become our own God. It's to become our own maker. It's to deny his sovereignty and, and really to assert our own sovereignty in our lives. It, it, would, it would seem fairly obvious that in a society that's rushing in the opposite direction so quickly in the area of gender that God's people would see the necessity of an even clearer stand than we've ever had before. And that, I know that kind of teaching is, is not popular. It's very much criticized today. And apparently, since it, it came out of Deuteronomy, which, you know, never mind the fact that it also includes a lengthy passage about this in 1 Corinthians, but the whole idea that men's and women's appearances should be visibly distinct from each other doesn't apply anymore. Well, that was in Deuteronomy. That's the Old Testament. It doesn't matter. American Christianity teaches, really, that that only applied to the Jews in the Old Testament. It doesn't apply today, because that's Deuteronomy, right? That's the, that's the book of the law. And there's, uh, but there's something curious here, though. It's, it's not what most of Christianity has thought for, for 2,000 years. Um, and let me just give you a brief sampling. I, I pulled out a bunch of commentaries and started reading through um, what they had to say about Deuteronomy 25. Most of the commentaries uh, that I have and, and that are in, in the public domain are old uh, and have been written you know, many years ago by Christians that uh, you know, before all of this nonsense of, uh, you know, homosexuality was being pushed on us and transgenderism was being pushed on us. I, I, I have to think that today, in a lot of cases, that the, the uh, commentaries that are, been, that are being written today are not being written in light of what the Bible has to say. They're being written in light of what culture has to say about those things, and that changes the way that they write. But let's go back a few years and, and see what, uh, what some of these commentaries said uh, before the Enlightened Age. In 1560, the Geneva Bible footnotes about this, all of these that I'm going to read are, are about Deuteronomy 22.5, says, that alters the order of nature and shows you despise God. Matthew Poole, he lived from 1624 to 1679. He said, now this is forbidden partly for decency's sake, that men might not confound nor seem to confound those sexes which God hath distinguished. Matthew Henry, that's a name that a lot of you would probably recognize. Matthew Henry was, was probably one of the first ones to actually write a commentary on the Bible, or at least uh, wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. He died in 1714, so that'll tell you how long ago this was. But he said, the distinction of the sexes by the apparel is to be kept up. Nature itself teaches that a difference be made between them and their hair, and by the same rule, in their clothes. John Gill died in 1771, said this, since in nature a difference in sexes is made, it is proper and necessary that this should be known by difference of dress. Otherwise, many evils might follow. Adam Clark died in 1832. He said a close-shaved gentleman may at times appear like a woman in the female dress, and the woman appear as a man in the male's attire. Were this to be tolerated in society, it would produce the greatest confusion. Albert Barnes died in 1870, said the distinction between the sexes is natural and divinely established and cannot be neglected without indecorum and consequent danger to purity. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is another commentary. It was written in 1871. It says the adoption of the habiliments of one sex by the other is an outrage on decency, 
obliterates the distinctions of nature by fostering softness and effeminacy in the man, impudence and boldness in the woman, as well as levity and hypocrisy in both. And in short, it opens the door to an influx of so many evils that all who wear the dress of another sex are pronounced an abomination unto the Lord. And that's, that, I mean, though, obviously those were written before the idea was popular uh, that, that, we would, that, that men would wear women's clothes, women would wear men's clothes. And, but I'm starting to think that it's not me that's out of the step with the majority of Christianity. It's, the, it's American Christianity today who really only came up with this idea in the last 50 years or so. Uh, but it's not been all that long since Christians began to embrace this idea. So I have to believe that it's the current generation that's out of step with the majority of Christian thinking on this Old Testament verse. But modern American Christianity has, has thrown out the historical understanding of Deuteronomy 22.5 because it, it doesn't want to be out of step with society that shifted its views on, on women wearing pants. And uh, honestly, this, this same idea, and we talked a little bit about this <clears throat> on Wednesday night when it came to the idea of evolution, Right? Evolution started to be accepted amongst Christians because science was saying that this was the way the earth came around. Well, they knew that the Bible said that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but then science came out and said, no, 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 that's not the way it happened. It happened by evolution. So then Christianity started trying to come up with a way to fit science and the Bible together. And they came up with the ideas like the gap theory, which says, well, there was days of creation. God created this and left long gaps of time for everything to evolve. Right? Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's, that's not what it, you know, the Bible doesn't, doesn't have anything to do with what, what the Bible says. The Bible is very clearly the evening and the morning were the first day, right? I mean, so, so when we try to marry the Bible with society, it's always the Bible that ends up getting thrown out, not society, when it should be the other way around when it comes to us as Christians. But Christianity does not have the right to adjust the teaching on a passage just because society has adjusted. But that's what we've done with a lot of things. We've adjusted our Christianity based on what society says is normal, right? Why are you finding out that in a lot of these churches, and thankfully it's not, it's not crept into the Baptist church in most places yet, but why are you finding that a lot of these other uh, denominations are uh, changing their view on homosexuality? Did the Bible change on that? The Bible has always said that homosexuality is an abomination, but now society is ramming it down our throats and telling us it doesn't matter. Let people decide for themselves what they want to do. That's their own life. They can do what they want to do with their own life. You need to accept it too. And American Christianity is saying, okay, okay, fine. You've pushed it down our throats long enough. We're accepting it, right? And whether it's still in, in their version of the Bible or not, they're, they're, they are allowing homosexuality uh, homosexual marriages in their churches. They're allowing clergy to be homosexuals. That, that doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. And a hundred years ago, people would have, would have looked at that and said, what in the world are you doing? But now because society has said it's okay and society has pushed it long enough, we've begun to accept it. And if Christianity does that, I promise you it'll have no end of adjusting to do. Just look at the, the constant shifting of positions on sexual, sexuality and gender in, in liberal and now even in evangelical American Christian churches. Now, I've read a, a lot of good books on this subject, but one that I came across, in fact, Miss Barbara let me borrow it. I'd heard of it before. I didn't have it. Um, but it was written by Elizabeth Rice Hanford, and, it's, and the, the title of the book is Your Clothes Say It For You. In fact, I've got it right here. Um, John R. Rice, which Brian just mentioned, we, the, the song that we just sang, was written by John R. Rice. He's written a lot of the songs that we have in our book. Uh, but this is, this is one of his daughters, Elizabeth Rice Hanford. And the book isn't real long. I don't know how many pages it is, about 100 pages. But 
Um, it's, it's, it's an excellent book on this whole topic, and uh, especially geared for ladies, because she is a lady. Uh, but I want to read you a chapter in this book, and I know I, I don't do this very often, but uh, I came a, I, in, in studying this out, I came across this chapter, and rather than try to summarize it myself, um, I decided I'm just going to read it. And it's a, it's a little bit long, but, but the way that she handles this passage here in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, I think is, is excellent. And so... Um, Let me read it to you. She says this. Apparently, this scripture says a woman is not to wear a man's clothing, and a man is not to wear women's clothing. Those who do are an abomination to God. Abomination is as strong a word of aversion as you can find. It means extreme disgust, loathing, abhorrence, hateful, shamefully vile. Abomination, that's the way that God feels when he sees a woman put on a man's garment or a man put on a woman's garment. Is this what that verse actually means? Sometimes it's been dismissed by Christians with the comment, that's only ceremonial law. That doesn't apply to us Christians. If it's only ceremonial law, then we not only are not obliged to keep it, it would be wrong for us to impose it on others. When Christ died, he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out, uh, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. That's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. Verse 16 and 17 say, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. All ceremonial laws were abolished at the cross. All moral laws are still in force. So how can we tell if this is ceremonial law or moral law and therefore binding? You'll remember that a ceremonial law was established by God, especially for the Jews. It had nothing to do with the inherent right or wrong. It involved a certain ceremony, hence the word ceremonial, that would teach the Jews something specific about their set-apartness for God. Jews were commanded to do certain things just to show they were different. For example, they were forbidden to eat certain animals and birds. But God changed that command after the death of Christ. In Acts 10, 15, God told the apostle Peter, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. The object lesson had been taught. It was impossible to earn salvation by keeping rules. The lesson is ended. Now anyone, Jew or Gentile, can eat meat. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, Men will depart from the faith, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created, to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing to be refused, if it be received with thanksgiving. Is then, Deuteronomy 22, 5, ceremonial or moral law? The whole chapter is a mixture of both. Many verses are obviously moral law. If you see a neighbor's ox or sheep wandering, return it. Conserve natural resources so future generations can eat. Take responsibility in your home for the safety of others. A wife has a right to a fair trial if accused by her husband of impurity. Rape is to be severely punished. So is adultery. These are moral laws. Four verses in this chapter are probably ceremonial. Don't sow mixed seed in a field. Don't plow with an ox and ass together. Don't mix fibers in woven cloth. Do wear a fringe on your clothing. Now, into which of these two categories does verse 5 fit? One clue is that the scripture says a woman who wears men's clothing is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. It's a terrible offense to God himself when a woman puts on men's apparel. Does God ever use the expression abomination unto the Lord when speaking of a ceremonial law? No. The essence of ceremonial law was that Jews would make certain things unclean to themselves. Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 11 lists a number of things that Jews were to consider an abomination. He is unclean to you, Leviticus 11, 7. All fowls that creep going upon all four shall be an abomination unto you, verse 20. All such prohibitions made to Jews in the Old Testament, were canceled in the New Testament. But when the phrase, an abomination to me, when God is speaking, or an abomination to God is used, the scripture is forbidding a gross moral sin, something inherently and obviously wrong and equally condemned in the New Testament. 
Idolatry is an abomination to God. So are human sacrifices, witchcraft, murder, and lying. And she's got verses for all of these. But therefore, when God says it is an abomination to him when a woman wears a man's clothes, we must conclude it is a moral command, not ceremonial. This sin is the same class with the gross sin of idolatry, adultery, and murder. In light of this, many Hebrew scholars believe Deuteronomy 22.5 refers to the heathen practice of using male prostitutes in temple worship, specifically to transsexual cross-dressing for deviant sex and the worship of pagan gods. And maybe this is its primary meaning. Any deliberate wearing of the apparel of the opposite sex in order to blur the distinctive work God has in mind for each sex would be wrong. To wear the clothing of the opposite sex might betray, perhaps unintentionally, an unwillingness to submit to the plan God especially designed for each one of us when he created us male or female. The question that next arises is, what is men's apparel? What is women's apparel? The assumption is that the reader of this scripture would know which was which. God doesn't ever give a command that we can't obey because we don't know what it means. The second assumption is that men's and women's clothing do differ. 1 Timothy 2.9 says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. The word apparel is the Greek word katastol. Young's analytical concordance translates it long robe. Note for the moment that the emphasis is on robe. We'll talk about the long robe later. In this scripture, the assumption is that women will wear robes. I know of only one situation in scripture where men were commanded to wear pants. The priests were commanded to wear breeches to cover the loins and thighs when they walked up the steps to minister at the altar. In 1 Timothy 2.9, in the, in the 1 Timothy 2.9 reference, we might ask if God gave this command concerning robes because it was the custom in Timothy's culture for women to wear robes. Perhaps not. God's word is eternal. It will last forever. It is, a, it is as applicable and relevant to us who live in an urban, mechanized, mobile society as it was to people 2,000 years ago living in a rural, agricultural, simple society. Furthermore, the stress of Scripture is that we are not to conform to the world's standards of culture if they violate Scripture. Some of Christ's most scathing denunciations were against those who taught the traditions of men as if they were the doctrine of God. God didn't notice that most of the women in Timothy's church wore robes and then determined that all Christian women in that town should wear robes. In fact, God graciously makes allowance in Scripture for those of different cultural backgrounds in non-moral matters. The outcome of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 was that Gentile Christians ought not to offend Jewish believers and that Jewish believers ought not to require ceremonial customs of Gentile Christians. In fact, when cultural customs are referred to in Scripture, which might not be familiar to those of another culture, the Holy Spirit often takes time out from the narrative to explain that custom. For example, in Ruth 4.7, Now this was the manner in former time in Israel concerning redeeming. A man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor. 2 Kings 11.14, Esther 1.13, 1 Samuel 9.9 have similar explanations. God would not ever give a command in Scripture that depended on our knowing about a foreign culture from an external source apart from His Word before we could understand it enough to obey it. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. So God's Word does not require light shed on, shed on, shed on it from secular history in order to understand what is expected of us. Certainly, we're profited by light from other sources on the Word of God. We are enriched by what Bible historians teach us. I speak now only of God's commands themselves being plain. Whatever 1 Timothy 2.9 means, it's not just a command of first century women in their relationship to a local cultural custom. It's for women living today in our culture as well. The Bible also makes many references to men wearing robes. The Greek word stole is used of men's garments as well as women's. Three times the word is translated wrong, long robe or long garment. How can there be a distinction if men and women both wore robes? 
A clue is found in the Greek word katastole, used only once in Scripture, and there's reference to women's clothing. There, there it refers to women's clothing. The Greek scholar says that that word means properly a lowering, letting down, hence a garment let down. So this seems to indicate a woman's robe would be longer than a man's. Another clue is found in Deuteronomy 25. The word garment is the Hebrew word simla. In contrast to an inner garment or vest, simla means outer garment. This implies it's the outside, the obvious, the immediately distinguishable garment that ought to differ between men and women. The silhouette, the total impression, is to be distinctly male or female. You ought to be able to tell at a glance whether one is a man or a woman. In Zondervan's Pictorial Dictionary, the article on Hebrew women's dress says, a few articles of female clothing carried somewhat the same name and basic pattern, yet there was always sufficient difference in embossing, embroidery, and needlework so that in appearance, the line of demarcation between men and women could be readily detected. In the more remote parts of the Arab lands today, there, where clothing is essentially the same as it was in Bible times, this statement is still true. Though the traditional Arab dress for men and women is still the robe, there is never the slightest doubt in your mind as to whether you are viewing a man or a woman. The entire silhouette is different. One day at the dinner table, our children were discussing our paper boy. Was he a paper girl? He wore a shirt and blue jeans, but that proves nothing these days. His, or was it her, hair was long and curly with cute bangs. He wore loafers with a fringe. I was inclined to agree with my girls. No boy could have curls that pretty. But my son Paul won the argument. It's a boy, he said positively. He rides a boy's bicycle. This is what God meant when he described confusion. Does Deuteronomy 22.5 then mean a woman ought never wear slacks? In this country, most women wear slacks. If most women wear them, doesn't that automatically make them women's apparel? Perhaps so, but if women's and men's apparel are to be distinct, how can a woman make her slacks distinct from a man's? Not by color. Pastels are no longer the private province of women. Color alone no longer conv conveys femininity. My zipper is on the side instead of the front, a woman explained to me. I made my slacks for me, so you can't say they are man's apparel. But does that meet God's expectation that the silhouette, the first impression, be distinctly feminine? To tell the truth, you wouldn't be very happy if a man checked to see if the zipper on your slacks was in the front or on the side. But slacks are so much more comfortable than a skirt, you might say. Your comfort is a subjective matter. You really may be more comfortable in pants, but should we make comfort our first consideration? A hundred times a day we choose to do what is not comfortable but right. We got out of bed every morning when staying in bed would be more comfortable. But slacks are more modest than skirts most women wear. Isn't it better to wear slacks than to be immodest? Aren't pants the lesser of two evils? In a later chapter, we'll talk about whether slacks are more modest than a skirt. And yes, I realize that's the third time I've told you we'll discuss something later. But you have no idea how hard it is to keep this, how, how hard it is uh, to keep this book organized. Right now, let's talk about whether slacks are the lesser of two evils, mannishness or immodesty. Charles Spurgeon said, when choosing between two evils, choose neither. Is it better to be immodest or to wear men's apparel? Spurgeon says, choose neither. You don't have to choose between immodesty and unwomanliness. You can be modest and womanly. When we must make a moral decision, let's erase from our possible choices every alternative that involves wrong. If you feel you have no choice but the lesser of two evils, it's because you have not considered all the alternatives. You do have another choice somewhere, somehow, so that you don't have to break any of God's commands. He promised in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 to provide a way we can escape from temptation. God always keeps his word. There's always some way to solve a problem without choosing evil. You may have to do some creative thinking and perhaps some designing and sewing. I'm not promising you it'll be the easy way out, but you can find a garment to wear that is both feminine and modest and functional. But my husband likes me to wear slacks, you might exclaim, knowing that I'm the woman who, that wrote that just as difficult to handle book, me, obey him. 
You know, I believe God wants us to obey our husbands. Does he want you to wear slacks because you seem to be more fun, less inhibited when you wear them? Do they seem to make you more his pal, his companion? That's a gift you can give him no matter how you dress. If you are earnestly obeying your husband in everything, not just where your druthers coincide with his, his will, I have a hunch he'll defer to your convictions about this. My husband does not feel as strongly as I do about my not wearing pants, but he treasures my relationship with the Lord and wouldn't want me to do something against my conscience. But you might properly object. You have taken one teensy-weensy scripture in the Old Testament and made a federal case out of it. If it's as important as you say, wouldn't God have repeated it elsewhere in scripture? This command is not repeated elsewhere in Scripture, but the biblical principle underlies all man-woman relationships. Even if it's not repeated, we have to ask ourselves, how many times must God command us to do something before we obey Him? Twice? Three times? Isn't one clear command enough to show us the mind of God? If we won't listen to Him the first time, would we listen to Him the second or third time? Jesus said we are accountable for every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. One command is enough. Is it legalistic? Rather than living by grace to obey this particular element of Scripture? I think not. I make choices every day about my lifestyle to avoid temptation, not to earn God's approval, but simply because He showered His great grace on me. One of my girls said to me, But mother, lots of women don't believe like you do about this, and they're just as good of Christians as you are. This is absolutely true. I have no corner on God's Word. This is a decision you must make for yourself as you study the Word and see God's heart. God holds me accountable for decisions I make while reading his word, regardless of what others believe. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-one says, We're to know the certainty of the words of truth, so that we might answer the words of truth back to him who sent them to us. We are accountable to listen to God's word, then repeat it back to him to demonstrate that we really heard him correctly. Perhaps the principles given in Romans chapter 14 for Christians who disagree on certain matters of lifestyle will help you make your decisions. First, it is wrong to judge others about spiritual decisions they make as they try to serve God. Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. But why dost thou judge thy brother, or why dost thou set at naught thy brother? Second, each of us will answer to God alone for our decisions. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, for it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Third, we ought not to give someone else an excuse to sin. Let us not judge, therefore, one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. But if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, now walkest thou not charitably? Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, for the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And last of all, we must not violate our own conscience. Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat, because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. This surely ought not to be a divisive thing among Christians. A, woman, a woman's godliness is certainly not determined simply by whether she wears a skirt or slacks. A critical spirit toward others about this would be just as sinful as disobedience in any other sphere. You might exclaim in exasperation, but Libby, I just don't like to wear skirts. And with that, we may have come to the heart of the difficulty. Why don't you like to wear skirts instead of slacks? Is it because slacks are more comfortable, more stylish, cheaper, more modest? Or could there be a more basic problem of which you are not aware? 
Several years ago, I was in the library researching a patriotic program I was writing for our Christian day school. Leafing through the yellowed 1933 almanac, I came across the picture of Marlene Dietrich sitting on top of a grand piano performing in a nightclub. The caption said, Miss Dietrich was the first woman ever to wear a man's suit in public. That was not strictly accurate. History tells us of many women who wore men's clothing. But when asked why she dared to do so, she retorted, because I'm tired of men having all the fun in life. A friend of mine was shopping in one of the largest department stores in Atlanta. She was astonished that they had dozens of racks of pantsuits and only one rack of dresses and suits with skirts. She expressed her surprise to the saleswoman. You bet, the clerk said, we women are finally getting our rights. We're not going to let the men push us around anymore. Sometimes then, evidently, a woman will choose to wear pants because she doesn't want the role God lovingly designed for her. The question, who wears the pants at your house, implies that whoever wears the pants is the boss. God intended for the man to be the leader in his own home. What you wear does reflect your attitude toward authority. It reveals how you feel about being a woman. God wants even your clothing to demonstrate that you gladly accept the position he has given you. Your clothing should say, I enjoy being a woman and I gladly submit to God's will for my life. I know it's long and uh, a lot to it. And, um, you know, certainly you could grab that book and, and there's, there's a lot more to it that, that kind of explains how she got up to that point. But the simple truth, I, I think, is that American Christianity, for the most part, no longer swims against the current. Right? We always used to do that. Um, it, now it, it purposely swims with the current, and it mocks these poor, dumb, ignorant, legalistic Christians who are trying to swim against the current. And that's why, that's why there's even a necessity to teach a lesson on what it means to be an independent, fundamental Baptist, because there are so few left. Uh, so many people, I mean, just go to any of these churches in this area and look at, at uh, what they are allowing in the churches, and you'll, you'll know that, uh, you know, uh, we're trying to swim with the current instead of against it. And in fact, what's happening now is that a lot of, of Christians are apologizing for the fact that it ever swam against the current, right? How many times have you seen people come out and say, you know, I, I know how hurtful the language was for us to preach against homosexuality, and I know how hurtful the language was for us to say this and say that and do these other things, when all we're doing is preaching the word of God. We don't need to apologize for preaching the word of God. But when women began wearing pants in Western society, it was understood that that was a statement by women that they had assumed for themselves the roles that were traditionally taken on by the men. And, that, and, and like she mentioned in that book, the, the statement of, of who wears the pants in the family means who's in charge, who, who leads, right? Who, who provides, who sets the pace, the, the reason why my wife and my daughter don't wear pants in public and the reason why, uh, honestly, every, every woman that teaches in Sunday school or sings in the choir or is a nursery worker or does anything in our church should be in a skirt or dress during church is not just about modesty. Yes, it's about modesty, but it's also about identity. I wouldn't let my son walk out of the house in a skirt. Right? You ha you'd have a big issue with that if I let my son walk out of the house in a skirt. You know, I, I wouldn't allow a deacon to serve the Lord's Supper in a, in a dress, right? You, you would think I was joking probably, and then you'd have a big issue with me if I got up here to preach in a dress, right? You, you would have a heart attack probably, and, and, and you would never come back. Um, you know, but, and you might be saying, well, men wearing skirts is different. Everybody knows that men shouldn't wear skirts, right? But mark my words, it's not going to be long before it's mainstream, and you're going to see it a whole lot more already trying to push it in a lot of aspects, and it, and it may be a few years, but eventually American Christianity is going to follow, and there will be, uh, it's going to start in your big non-denominational churches first, 
but there'll be guys up there preaching on the stage in a skirt, and they're going to be laughed at and made fun of and everything else, and people are going to leave that church, but some will stay. And eventually, more churches are going to do it, and eventually it's going to be mainstream, it'll be normalized, and, and, and men are going to wear skirts. In fact, can I read you an article really quick from, from this past summer? Brad Pitt turned some heads at the premiere of his latest film by donning a skirt for his red carpet appearance. 58-year-old actor was all smiles when he arrived at the Berlin screening as he posed for photos while wearing a brown raw-edge hem, knee-length skirt, and matching jacket. Pitt paired the outfit with combat boots, a pink button-down, multiple necklaces, and sunglasses. His outfit showed off multiple leg tattoos. When he was asked why he was wearing a skirt, the actor told a reporter, the breeze, the breeze. The actor has apparently professed his love of wearing skirts in the past. According to British Vogue magazine, Pitt predicted that skirts would become a mainstream fashion for men in no time. He made the comments while promoting the 2004 historical war film, Troy. Men will be wearing skirts by next summer, Pitt said at the time. That's my prediction and proclamation. The film answers to both genders. We're going for realism and Greeks wore skirts all the time. Well, that wasn't even the first time the actor wore traditionally feminine clothing for a photo op. At the height of his heartthrob days in 1999, Brad Pitt appeared on the cover of Rolling Stone smoking a cigarette while wearing a boldly printed dress. When pop singer Harry Styles started wearing dresses like on the cover of Vogue, many fans drew comparison to Pitt's photo shoot. Social media was divided on Pitt's skirt and jacket combo for the premiere. One podcaster said, just when you think Brad Pitt couldn't get any sexier, he wears a skirt. Another person said, all the dinosaurs are gassed today at Brad Pitt in a skirt. I freaking love it personally. Pitt previously told Esquire that his personal approach to style values comfort above all other things. He said this, you get older, you get crankier, and comfort becomes more important. I think it's as simple as that. I don't want to look ostentatious, but if you come close, you notice. I like how the lining feels. It's those details that are important to me. Too exhausting to follow trends. I think it's pretty interesting that a lot of women use the exact same excuse uh, for why they wear pants. But, you know, there's a lot of arguments to that. Well, obviously, you're, you're a male chauvinist, you know. No, it doesn't have anything to do with control. It has everything to do with trying to be scripturally obedient, right? Regardless of whether, uh, well, you know, because people say that too. Well, your church is never going to grow. You're always going to have a small church. And, and honestly, it, it's probably true. It's probably true. But it's not about church growth. It doesn't have anything to do with how big we are or the size that we are or anything like that. It has, it has everything to do with obedience. Well, I can see your church is made up of legalistic dinosaurs, you know, and I think people should run screaming out of that controlling atmosphere. And again, you can take it to a, a, to a whole far extreme, and, um, and we'll leave it at that. But, you know, I, I'm certainly not trying to chase anybody out. I'm not going to speak harshly about you or anything like that, and, um, but... but, but you're still going to have to answer to God someday for Deuteronomy 22.5 and how you responded to it, right? Um, and, and again, it, it comes down to the idea that, that my wife, and, and honestly, I, you know, my, I, I grew up with this standard, so for me, it was not something that I'd never heard of before. It was not something that, I, uh, that was foreign to me. Um, but when I met my wife, and you know, I honestly had my wife worn pants when we met. I probably would have said, you know what, fine, do that. Then it doesn't, doesn't bother me. Uh, but she had that standard. And it was, it was not something that uh, uh, she took lightly. It was something that she took very seriously. And, and over the years, I've come, especially through studying these things out myself, to, to get to the point where 
it is important that we do this. It's important that we have that as a standard. Um, and, you know, and I, I know the argument, you know, if that's a rule, I'll keep it at church, but I'm going to live how I want to the rest of the week, and you can't stop me. And you're right. I can't stop you, and I wouldn't try to stop you. Um, I, you know, but, but, I, but I think we need to have that desire to grow in grace, to grow in holiness. Uh, it's, it's an inward grace that works its way out, um, not just at church. Like, obviously, you've, you've never seen my wife in a pair of pants. Um, because it's not just at church, it's at, it's at Walmart, it's on the sidewalk, it's at home, it's everywhere, because it's, it's a reflection of who you are, not it's just something you do. And I think, that's, I think that, that mindset has been projected on people in churches for so long, this is something you do, uh, that, it, that it becomes just something you do, rather than something that you are. Now listen, nobody is, nobody is um, happier than I am that this is the last lesson in this series. Um, I'm not trying to make you unhappy. I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm not trying to make you angry. But as we've looked at this whole idea, clothing has a moral use. And the Bible principle of modesty clearly enters into that. Clothing, clothing has, an, has an aesthetic use. And the Bible principle of vanity clearly enters into that. We've talked about both of those principles, and clothing has an identifying use, and that's what we're talking about tonight. The Bible principles related to looking like a Christian and looking like a man or looking like a woman clearly enter into that. And again, it doesn't have to just be um, a man wearing a skirt, right? There's a lot of ways that men today are looking a whole lot more effeminate than they ever have. And, you know, the idea of the skinny jeans and, you know, all these, you know, tight clothes and, you know, just there's a lot of different things. And, and honestly, I'm just, I am, I am perplexed by, you know, uh, even in churches that I knew for many years to be good churches, how the guys are all running around with this long floppy hair that's hanging over their face and their eyes and they're constantly doing this kind of stuff. That's feminine. It's effeminate. And it's not, it's not something that is, it is it's, it's just pushing a line to try to look more and more like the world, because that's what they're seeing today, right? You, you watch basketball games, and that's what you see. You watch, you know, you watch uh, any of these other things, and that's what you see. The guys have all this long, floppy hair, and, you know, uh, you notice that the, uh, the shorts are getting shorter again. Um, back in the 80s, when the shorts were this tall in a basketball game, you know, they're getting back to that point again. You know, and, and, and it's, it's moving back in that direction. And all of Christianity says, well, this is what society is doing, so this is what we have to do too. And we move with society rather than, there should be one thing that will never change. And of course, that's the word of God, but that should be American Christianity. Does not matter what society does. It does not matter what society says. It does not matter what changes in our world. There should be one thing that never changes, and that should be Christians. Because we, base, we are basing it on the word of God. But we change. And we flow with society. And where society starts doing this, we float downhill with them. And we might create a little bit of a ripple by pushing back just a little bit against that. But we're all floating in that same direction. And at some point, we have to stand up in the middle of the river and say, let the world flow around us. I'm not moving from this spot. And, and that's honestly what this idea of standards and convictions is all about. We should be different. We should be distinct, especially in a world that is trying to tell us that we have to be the same as them. Something has to be different. Something has to change. Uh, and it shouldn't be us. Let the world change. Let the rest of American so-called Christianity change. We need to hold a line that we've been given in the Word of God. 
So your religion is inward, yes, but it's also outward. It's inside out, and it's important that God's people apply that to our appearance. Not going to talk. Uh, not going to do any more lessons on this. Although there's probably a lot of other things that we could say, a lot more verses that we could look at. Uh, I believe we've covered that sufficiently. But think about it. Pray about it. It's something that that has to be a decision that you make on your own. Because again, if obviously we're going to have a standard for our church. So when you're working in a ministry, this is the standard that you have to have because this is who we are, and you're representing the church. Um, but everywhere else, that's your choice. You decide what you're going to follow and what you're not going to follow, what you're going to be and what you're not going to be. Um, and again, it's the Holy Spirit. If I can convince you or if I can tell you that you have to do that, then the moment I'm gone or the moment you're somewhere else, it's, it, it's going to change again because somebody will convince you the, the other way or, or you don't have to do it anymore because you're no longer under those rules or whatever. So I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't do um, when you are on your own, when you're, when you're at your home, when you're doing the things that you're going to do. Uh, but uh, but I, I think it's something that you ought to seriously consider from the Word of God, especially in light of what we talked about tonight when it comes to this idea of distinction. So modesty, yes, but also distinction. And those two go hand in hand, and they help us to become and, and to be exactly what God wants us to be. There's, there's a lot of, of things that, I, that are more important than that in the Bible, right? There's a lot of doctrines that, that, are, that are more important than this idea of modesty and standards and convictions and all that stuff. Although the idea of standards and convictions is, is not just, you know, we, we tend to associate, you know, what you wear with standards, but there's a lot of standards and there's a lot of convictions and things that we can have. So that, that's a broad term, but, um, you know, that's something that, that uh, the Holy Spirit has to convince you about and something that you really need to pray about, and something that you, that you really need to search out and, and figure out if there is something more to it than maybe the way that you've always done it. But let's pray, and then we'll sing our song and be dismissed. Thank you for listening. I, I know it's, um, especially if you've not heard it before, it's not an easy thing to listen to. Um, and for me, like I've mentioned, it's not an easy thing for me to preach because I know I'm talking to people who have never heard it before and who, who um, in, a, in a lot of ways... Um, may not like it. I'm not trying to make you, like I said, I'm not trying to make you angry. I'm not trying to, uh, trying to ruffle any feathers or anything like that. But because it's in the Word of God and, and, and uh, uh, it's something that we need to talk about and, and something that you need to consider. Let's pray and we'll sing. I'll be dismissed. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for the truths that we have in the Word of God. I pray that you'd help each one of us in our pursuit of holiness to be as right with you as we possibly can be. And God, where we, uh, where we err, I pray that you'd help us to change it. Not even in just this area, but in others. Sometimes we, we may go overboard on some things. And, if, and if, we're err, if we're erring in those things, then I pray that you'd help us to change them. Uh, where we underperform in the things that you want us to do, I pray that you'd help us to change them. And especially in relation to this idea that we're talking about with standards of dress, God, I, I pray that you would help us to, uh, to have the Holy Spirit's leading in our lives on these issues and on these things that we could be convinced of them uh, one way or another and that you'd use it in our hearts. And I, and I pray that you'd help us to be that solid rock of Christianity, not for the sake of just standing up, not for the sake of trying to be noticed or anything like that, but, but for the sake of holding the truth of the Word of God in every area that we find in the Bible. And I pray that you'd help us to be Christians that you can use because of it, not, not for 
the sake of, of just being noticed, not for the sake of just being uh, different or, or you know, standing up in some ways or whatever. God, you, you know what my heart is on this issue. I pray that you'd help us to be different because we want to be right. I pray that you'd help us to be different because we want to be used. And I pray that you would use us because of that. Well, thank you for all that you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen.